Hello listeners, my name is Sarah Brjandian and I am the founder of Collaborative Social Change and one of many hosts of our Global Peace and Conflict podcast. We also have our digital media producer, Dave Horowitz, and founding members of CSC, Dr. Marissa Tramontano, Danny Lord, and Nusha Nematzadeh, helping to facilitate our, our discussions today. All of our bios and contact information can be found on our website at collaborativesocialchange.org. Today we have our third panel discussion in our launch series that asks, how can violence prevention be more preventative? In our first episode, we answered this question from an interpersonal vantage point, particularly in relation to child protection. In the second episode, we explored this question in the context of large-scale human rights violations and atrocity crimes, with specialists that have experience tackling this question using law, policy, research, and resource mobilization. In this third episode, we will return to the latter context of preventing atrocity crimes, namely genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, which I defined in full at the beginning of the second episode. But this time our specialists bring experience answering this question in the context of diplomatic, grassroots, political, and humanitarian intervention. In other words, beyond what laws and policies we can use to prevent human beings from experiencing atrocity violence, i.e. genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, how can we be more effective in using research and strategy development, relationship building, civil society, and resource mobilization to scale up preventative methods as opposed to reactionary ones? As I explained at length in our first episode, in the context of violence prevention as an area of practice, preventative methods are anticipatory, meaning we can foresee that violence might occur and we take steps to disallow such harm. Preventative methods can also include organizing our society in ways we believe are less likely to create violence. Reactionary methods still aim to prevent future violence, but instead we are responding to an occurrence of violence in a way that discourages the same or similar instances from happening again. And today we are lucky enough to have two specialists that are very much proponents of scaling up preventative methods in their respective areas of work. Dr. Ashad Santongo, who is a longtime colleague and friend of mine, is joining us from Kampala, Uganda. His research and publications focus on power and ethnicity, early warning and early response, transformational leadership, traditional dispute resolution, and genocide and mass atrocity prevention. We are also lucky to have with us Ms. Alexandra Lukashevitz who is a child protection practitioner with a background in children's rights. She holds a master's in human rights from University College London. She also has experience in both development and humanitarian response in complex conflict and post-conflict settings. She is joining us today from northern Mozambique, where she is based, and she's supporting child protection initiatives in emergency programming as one response to the conflict in Cabo Delgado. In her role, she is very active in technical strategy development and implementation for children associated with armed conflict agenda, as well as advocacy and response to violations of children's rights. Ashad, let's start with you. Tell us a bit about the experiences you're going to be drawing on in this discussion and what you believe are some of the major causes of the prevailing reactionary approach to atrocities prevention. Thank you, Sarah, for, for that uh, wonderful introduction. Um, much of what you have read is um, the background to that is that um, I lived through um, civil wars and military coups growing up 
in Uganda. And the key question I was asking myself as I finished university and I saw regime changes is how can we put a stop to this? Because every moment that we had a military coup, a civil war at a family level, we literally lost everything. And for every regime change, we were beginning like from zero. And that drew me to the study and an interest in understanding conflict. And uh, when I went to study that, I focused a lot on understanding issues of power, ethnicity, resource conflict, because I think those were central in the history that I have described. Um, as we speak now, the Great Lakes region, including Uganda, has not lived a day without war for the last 45 years. At any one moment, we have had war. You have over 200 million people in the region, and over 75% of those are below the age of 40. In other words, you have a generational problem where over 75% of the people have grown up with the understanding that when things, conditions are unfavorable, we fight. And when we fight, there is evidence across different countries and regime change that those who fight and win, their conditions get better. You know, they occupy positions in government, become wealthy, go to school, nice schools and so on, until others mobilize and take over power, you know, militarily. So that is the context in very brief terms of what poses, what makes your question very critical. And that is the context that I think uh, draws a lot of interest in understanding these conflict processes and why prevention matters is important, but why it also fails. So you'll, all, you'll find within that history that number one, a number of regimes, a number of leaders, a number of people have become wealthy as a result of violence. We have gone through that path. It becomes difficult to tell that individual to accept, to prevent, because that's what sustains them there. In other words, it delivers results on the table and changes their livelihood, regardless of who else is affected on the way. That makes it very difficult to sell prevention. Number two is that um, uh, prevention is not sexy. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's, it's, it's difficult to wake up in the morning and then you start telling people, you know what, um, in the next two years, if this happens, we are going to die. You're going to kill each other. So please let us change the way. You know, it's, it's a difficult subject to sell because it's not manifest. The, the, the threat you are pointing to the disaster about to occur is not manifest. What is sexy and attractive is what is happening right there. The violence is exciting. It is attractive. It attracts both attention, but also a lot of resources. 
it has a lot of money behind it. That 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 that, uh, that uh, when you you study trends in conflict profiteering, you will discover billionaires have been created out of cycles of violence, and therefore for you to terminate that pathway to quick resources and huge sums of resources under someone's control or a group of control, it it becomes difficult to serve. So. During that process, um, over those two things, the, the, the absence of that appeal for violence and the history of violence that has explained why some people have been successful, um, I have tried to work with um, a number of organizations, as you have indicated. I've worked with cultural leaders. I have worked with the, with the politicians. At a cultural level, from an African perspective, uh, we are very deeply traditional and cultural. But unfortunately, the values that used to explain non-aggression, peace, and prevention were excluded from the process of, of interaction as part of building the state. You know, um, in Uganda, there is a law that uh, Culture and traditional practices cannot, or leaders cannot get involved into politics. It's a law and it is punishable. So when you remove those values of belongingness, of self-esteem, of identities, and and so on, you 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 all you are left with is just a space to compete and be aggressive. And uh, in the in the chapter I wrote uh, about the Boganda culture system, which evolved as a system of resolving conflicts. I point to some of the practices that culturally were eradicated from the process of interaction between people and tribes and groups as we were becoming citizens. So if I'm getting you right, Ashad, there are some cultural values that lend themselves to prevention by resolving differences nonviolently. But those values were marginalized from shaping how individuals and groups interact with each other and how to approach governance when the state of Uganda was formed under British colonial rule. Can you elaborate a little on whether this is still the case today? Unfortunately, at a political level, there remains a huge contest between citizenship and tribalism and a huge contest between the tribe and the state all of them competing for power and influence. and But when those values are eliminated and then you say all we have is a constitution, the constitution assumes that there is a minimum understanding of everybody understands why the constitution matters. But you know that in our societies it is not. So in the absence of those collective minimum standards against which individuals estimate each other. It becomes difficult for you to reach an understanding of what a threat looks like that is going to lead to violence. The nature of state formation eliminated and removed values that existed to bind communities together. The Baganda, for instance, in Uganda, the word Buganda, Ganda means a bundle. And Buganda means bundles together. 
So the system of the Baganda, the culture system, evolved to keep the bandos together. And the bandos are clans, families, groups, and communities remaining together and working together peacefully. Now, once you eliminate those practices that kept them together and allowed them to assimilate and accept other tribes into the central region, into Buganda, and they associated, they intermarried on the basis of that, then what do you have left for people to hold on to when they have a dispute as a minimum departure point to resolve it, to negotiate and to solve it? So my experiences as a, as, as, as a, a, a huge, and I have thought about prevention and I've, I, I've tried to market it. I've tried to build mechanisms to think about it. But every time you try to raise up this, the discussion from a community level, from a community level, towards the state and engage the political leaders or the decision makers at the top, the challenge is those things don't work. Why is that the prevailing view? Like what, what, are, what are political leaders even saying about this? I wish we had continued with our discussion and said, hey, you were right, we'll find time. But he has never featured anymore. I'm sharing that experience to say that, that uh, one of the causes that makes prevention difficult is the absence of a minimum understanding against which individuals interact. The tendency, the stage that has been set is to compete. And it is also a difficult subject to sell. When we were registering the Auschwitz Institute in Uganda for the prevention of genocide, I was invited at the ministry which issues the registration certificates. And it took me three hours to explain why we have the word genocide in the name of the organization. And they said, is genocide going to happen in Uganda? Why do you have it? And I said, no, 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 no. The emphasis is prevention. We use genocide annex as an extreme form of violence. We don't want to get there. So we want to adapt systems and practices, talk about legal systems, um, economic approaches, uh, local community practices, you know, forms of, of, of rule of law that feed into prevention so that the cycles of violence that the region has and Uganda has suffered can be terminated. Finally, they accept it. Isn't it interesting that we still need to play that game of convincing some leaders that no state is immune to mass violence and, and mass atrocities when most of them know this? Sarah, prevention is not failing because we don't know what causes violence. Over 50 years, the Great Lakes region has known that if you, are, you ethnically dominate power, others will fight you out. If you deny others access to economic and uh, political opportunities, they mobilize and fight. If you ignore this, everything that has caused violence over the last half a century is known. So we talk about early warning, and I wrote a chapter about that in a book, Reconstructing Atrocity Prevention. 
But the real thing is that the signs are all there. The problem is how do you translate it? Exactly the question you are asking. How do you translate everything that is known into how do you translate the mindsets to begin looking at those as signs that can lead to a relapse or a continuation or a recurrence of cycle of violence and so on? The key questions are one, it's a difficult subject to sell. Number two, the violence has provided pathways to power and resources and those that get it, they use it and dominate and control and they dominate decision making and it is so difficult to tell them. It's like telling them to accept that what they did was wrong <laughs> to get to power. What they, you know, you're talking about prevention. Other people have said, no, no, that is the way to liberate a country. So we liberated and you're telling us to accept that we made a mistake. That is so true, isn't it? In the context where armed conflict was used to force regime change, particularly in the name of liberating the country from tyranny, then it's really hard to ask the sitting government, that often refer to themselves as liberators, to admit that their own method of obtaining power was and still is unacceptable because there might be huge implications in admitting this. That is the conundrum. The work that I did on prevention, we were discussing prevention. I don't know whether I shared that with you at some point. Um, and I was doing some work in South Sudan just before the war. So I met some people and we set up a committee. Then I moved to Kenya for another meeting. And I found a gentleman from an NGO called New Hope for South Sudan. And we had a discussion about South Sudan, where I was coming from, I told him what is happening. And he spoke so passionately about the need to resolve the conflict in South Sudan. It should never have happened. And I asked him, but, but after a long discussion, I asked him, are you a Nuer or a Dinka, the main ethnic groups that are fighting? And he said, no, I'm not any of the two. He said, so who are you? And by the way, he had just graduated from with the, with the masters from UK and was staying in Kenya. And he said, I'm an Acholi from Northern Uganda. I said, so where did you get the passion? He said, no, we migrated. We, 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 ran, we went into exile in Abia and we stayed with the Nuer for a very long time. We were hoping that the moment South Sudan stabilizes, we shall also mobilize and go back home. But do you think he was coming back to Uganda for a cup of tea? Because these are people who were left, who left the country in the midst of war, and they lost a lot. So were they planning really to come back uh, to, to, to have a party? Maybe they were also organizing to say we need to fight our way back. Why? Now, I shared that experience to make a point that it's not, no, it's not correct that we don't know that these individuals exist there at a transnational level or across borders 
and they can come back to the state. It is common in the Great Lakes region. You can't solve a conflict in Uganda without solving a similar conflict in South Sudan, in Burundi, in DRC, in Kenya, because of the cross-border sanctuaries and alliances that exist. The same, you can't solve a Hutu-Tusi problem in Rwanda without solving a similar problem in Burundi, in Tanzania, in Uganda, in the DRC. So you see the connectivity. So we know what is actually causing the violence. The failure for prevention to become practical and achieve the goals lies at the heart of what actually violence delivers to those who are in power and the failure for us to package, to package violence, I mean prevention, and institutionalize it. I see what you mean, Ashad, as you're rightly pointing out that in the context of the Great Lakes region of Africa, inhabitants and leaders often know the causes of violence, but our preventative efforts don't always deal with a conflict system as such, regardless of geographic location. Instead, we often limit our prevention efforts to national boundaries, which is not always sufficient. So I think some examples that do address the regional component include reducing the use of small arms across the Ugandan Kenyan border, or um, the more recent exposure of the Rwandan and Ugandan government's involvement in armed conflict unfolding in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But the regional approach remains extremely weak across the globe, and I'm wondering how resource providers can do a better job of supporting such initiatives. At one time, I had a discussion in New York with colleagues from the, the UN, and I told them, let us make a presentation to the World Bank and make sure that prevention becomes a condition for accessing World Bank resources. The country must demonstrate that they have mechanisms to prevent conflicts that may come as a result of the resources they give these countries because those the same resources have been gone through education and, 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 and nobody is wondering if I give you money. I, I asked some people from UK, United Kingdom, you have been funding education and health in Uganda for the last 50 years. At what moment do you ask yourself, where are we going wrong? Without asking Ugandans, whether you have diverted the money to war and fighting. But when you stop and ask yourself, what haven't we done correctly? How can you commit to fund an, a, a sector or two in a country for half a century and you do it even the next year without asking questions about what has gone wrong? Where have we made the impact? You know? Britain has funded the Uganda police for almost half a century. Okay? As we speak now, if you go to the media, and the Chief of Defense Forces did a very brave thing and went and apologized for abuses and brutality that was, you know, meted on journalists and demonstrators last week. But that is an institution that Britain has been funding 
to professionalize for half a century, and they didn't say a word. So when prevention becomes so difficult to sell under such circumstances, because we are competing with very huge resources, very big egos, very, very entrenched systems that actually feed into cycles of what we are trying to prevent. And it will take us a lot of lobbying, a lot of creativity for us to compete, to position that agenda, to compete with those big you know, engagements like involving the World Bank and the United Nations. You cannot not tell me that the United Nations doesn't know. Absolutely. And it makes you wonder, what are the priorities of resource providers and international and inter intergovernmental bodies? If they know something is wrong, then why isn't drastic radical change in how they fund at the top of the agenda? That was more of a rhetorical question, as I do want to throw it over to um, the humanitarian response apparatus, which Alexandra can help us unpack a bit. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, so, I mean, as a humanitarian, I think the sector by nature is is very reactionary and um, and I think it's it's um, a sector that needs a lot of change and needs a lot of, of um, dissecting to see how prevention can be more more part of of the agenda and and um, you know working in in conflict set, uh, conflict settings you see um, as Dr. Ashad said that it is um, violence is a prof profitable um, action and and um, many times the, the the motivations for violence are are financial and and I mean in the context I'm in here it's it's all over natural resources and and um, you know, a, a province that has been neglected by by its government and uh, both financially and and with other resourcing. Um, and you know, there's there's a setting for radicalization and and which leads to to violence. And and as as Dr. Ashad mentioned, that there you know we know the the motivations for violence and. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's it's hard to to work in that preventative um, aspect because you know so many people are profiting from from the violence and and they don't seem to to associate the consequences of of the violence with with um, with their actions, right? So. Um, but by nature, like I said, um, it is a response, right? Humanitarian response. And, and so uh, it, there has been a movement towards uh, more preventative um, yeah, agenda. And, and I think, you know, there's disaster risk reduction and emergency preparedness planning, but but again, it's it's still very reactionary, right? And and um, donors are are moving more towards, you know, how how can these kinds of things be prevented? But then, you know, humanitarian response is not only towards conflict, but also to to natural disaster, and so there has to be a bit of flexibility and and um, yeah, it's it's not easy to to see how this you know billion dollar 
uh, industry or sector will shift to to be because you know the money comes in when when there needs to be a reaction, unfortunately. And so, uh, yeah, I think there is a movement towards towards um, more preventative measures, but uh, and you know engaging with with armed groups and armed forces and in uh, dialogue on on you know human rights and and things like that but again it's it's already once once the violence is is present and and affecting populations thank you i i'm i'm kind of bringing together two threads i I think you're very right. I mean, humanitarian assistance at the end of the day is a reaction. It's defined by, you know, the field is defined by reacting to violence and natural disasters. And I'm thinking um, to bring in some of the components that Ashad was mentioning and maybe link them to humanitarian assistance a little bit. Um, you know, he's talking about this mentality shift that needs to happen, right? So there's these generations of people that all they see is that violence is beneficial in the short term, right? and they're benefiting from it and they're seeing that they can attain certain things that help them survive or increase their quality of life. And so um, if we were to take that mental shift, right, and, and then I'm going to attach that to the concept of cultural violence, right? Cultural violence, um, you know, if we draw on Johan uh, Galtung, it's really those those norms, the, the norms that we perpetuate in society that make the other kinds of violence that we're talking about, for example, atrocity violence, much more acceptable. So it shifts in language and when you're demonizing, for example, if we think about the um, genocide in Rwanda, um, you know, using the radios to demonize the uh, Tutsis and call them cockroaches or dehumanize them before you can have that kind of large scale physical violence happen. But um, that, that cultural violence that's used to, uh, I guess, separate groups and create the other and then also make it a lot easier to make acceptable discrimination um, and, and physical violence against them um, is one component of that mental shift I think that we need to be thinking about is um, can cultural violence be prioritized in humanitarian assistance and can structural violence, right? So let's think of, because I know Uganda quite well, I did my thesis on Uganda um, for my own PhD, and we think about Uganda and the ethnic diversity and also how colonization um, really propped up a certain group um, and, and almost uh, by through indirect rule pitted that uh, the Bagandans specifically um, against other ethnic groups in, in the country. Um, that, that structural violence that was inculcated during the colonial state, right, is going to have impacts after the, you know, the decolonization process. And then during that time, um, you know, there's, it's arguable, and I think a lot of Baganda would disagree with this, but they did see that other ethnic groups saw the Baganda as benefiting and being in a position of privilege. But then after independence, each cycle of, of conflict, you see actually, um, you know, a lot of leaders coming from the north that are very much because of that colonial history targeting southern regions, particularly um, the Baganda and wanting to keep them out of power because of the structural violence and the, uh, the perception of privilege that, that they had 
uh, during the colonial period. So embedded in the structures uh, is this idea that we don't want certain ethnicities having access to certain positions, having certain kinds of decision-making power, and it becomes kind of embedded in the structures as well uh, through the decision-making of those that um, happen to have power uh, during a particular period of time. So in, in the structures of, of Uganda, if we're thinking about structural violence and, and one way we can um, define this in broad terms is that it's really what uh, or how we're organizing our societies, how we build the structures in our societies work to discriminate or marginalize certain groups based on their identity, right? I'm going to define it like that for this discussion. And so if that's the case, right, if, if humanitarian assistance, let's say, for example, thought experiment, I know this is ridiculous and I know it doesn't even, I know it's absolutely um, not how the field would define itself or why it exists. But if it were to focus on cultural violence and structural violence and respond with the same urgency to cultural violence and structural violence, would we then need um, such a reactionary approach to that large scale civil war and, and mass violence that we see humanitarian assistance often having a presence? So, um, so yeah, so I just thought I'd, I'd shift the, the conversation a little, bring together you know, some of the reasons that Ashad thinks that we're still reacting um, and show that if we shift the concept of violence that we prioritize, um, then we can at least be preventative in, toward that physical violence or atrocity violence that we, we find so morally shocking um, if we were to then focus on other types. So I, I'll stop there and maybe throw it to Ashad. Um, what do you think of that? I like the concept of paradigm shift. The way Thomas Kuhn explained it, in the book, Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Thomas Kuhn's argument was, you see, a, a paradigm is, is, is a mental construct, you know, the, 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 the way of thinking and the worldview that you develop and look at things. But then he said that when anomalies begin to appear in a paradigm, it is time to retool. You retool the paradigm. That is the word I want to underline. That the way we have constructed our thinking about humanitarian aid, about development, about, you know, peace building needs to be retooled. We can no longer deal with the current challenges in a piecemeal way, you know. We need to, for instance, we need to reconceptualize humanitarian work as, as just a piece of the whole puzzle. You, you, know, you know, we have a huge puzzle that accounts for what, why humanitarian crises occur. And when you come in and you react, I did my work with Massicot um, in, 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 in um, in, in, at, at Massachusetts, and I was doing an assessment of uh, their work, conflict management. This was years ago. I don't know whether they changed. Their conflict management work in Kosovo, uh, Ethiopia, Guatemala, and uh, four countries. And as a student of conflict at my master's, I discovered that there was actually no conflict management. 
they were doing humanitarian work. And that I wrote that conclusion in the thesis and they submitted it. But there was no conflict management work. They were doing humanitarian work, bringing some people who have affected by land conflicts in Guatemala. They sit and talk about that. But there was no nothing to impact on policies, on political processes, on local mechanism, local government practices and systems, so that there is spaces created not only to redress those who have been affected by land conflicts, but even solving the root causes of the problem. Something that points to positive peace that Johann Galtung again talks about, that you don't only deal with the absence of violence, or you don't only deal with people who have been affected by disaster and conflict, but you, you make sure you extend the, the debate, the intervention to redress policies that led to that. That is that has to happen. It's no longer sufficient to provide, and I've made this argument in the previous in the in the elections that just ended in Uganda, that people who provide voter education, you know, because the elections two months to come, it's insufficient when all other rights are neglected in the process. That people don't know, even when they have a problem you don't provide mechanism to solve that problem outside the politics, or you only focus on elections. So my thinking, Sarah, is that whether it is the cultural dimension of violence, whether it is the structure of violence, they all have to be together. Harold Sanders talked about those two dimensions very well, and I like the approach. He says, that when we engage, whether it is in humanitarian situations, whether it is civil war, we must always approach employee interventions that bring the structure and the relational dimension together in the intervention. Not only, not only doing constitutional reforms without letting people know and understand why these, where they, they, they stand. So in the field of transitional justice, many commentators, including myself, advocate that in several contexts, such as Uganda, you can't just prosecute perpetrators of atrocity crimes or have a truth commission to help transition a society away from violence towards sustainable peace, because you're not sufficiently dealing with the structural and relational dynamics negatively affected by mass violence. So you also need meaningful institutional reform and social transformation to deal with many of those root causes um, and more effectively. And in doing so, which is what I think you are saying, Ashad, uh, when you do facilitate institutional reform, like, an, for example, amending a, a country's constitution, the inhabitants of that society need to be at the center of the discussion to shape the process which in turn helps them understand where they fit in their country's transformation process and the new social arrangement it brings. But transitional justice, much like humanitarian assistance, is reactionary, meaning that um, mass atrocities and, and mass violence uh, is required for these areas of practice to be activated. So what do you think of that? The reactionary approaches are good and they are excellent. I, I'm, not, I'm not speaking to say they're useless. Absolutely not. They are very useful and central to making sure communities continue to exist, 
people's lives are protected and, and, and so on and teaching about rights. But but it is wrong, it is it 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 is it is a challenge when at the end of the pro the project cycle, <laughs> you know, um the funds have all been used in northern Uganda as you may have known or in, 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 in Mozambique or in, in, in Burundi. And then they go back. You see, we were in Romonge, and I think I shared that story with you, where after the peace agreement, a lot of money was put in by the, by the UN to build houses, to resettle refugees from Burundi who fled in 1975 wars and everything else who were in camps in Tanzania. They came back and they were settled under the UN was, you know, it was the project of. Then they started cutting off each other's hands. You know why? Because people who left in 1975, they came back and those who stayed had taken their properties. They had occupied their land. Those who regained their land, they left when they were two, a family, they came back eight. They could no longer fit on the same land. There was no system to redress that complex, complex problem. And instead, people were simply told, those are your houses. Now you can settle. And there's some education, sensitization that went on without really redressing the real problem. The education system faced a challenge. People who left speaking French, who were young and speaking Kirundi, they came back speaking Swahili and English. So they could not fit into the existing schools, yet Burundi could not afford new schools. Then a problem started happening in schools. We also want education, want education. They end up putting 18-year-old boys in primary one to learn Chirundi and French. And that created a problem. They started saying we are discriminated against. So if a humanitarian approach to that situation in Burundi would be comprehensive enough, what would be required? Was the settlement, the resettling of the refugees sufficient only? Or you would have extended the debate further to say, when they come in, how will the education sector absorb them? How would you deal with the land problem? How would you deal with health and so many other issues, which we are left unaddressed and instead they created a problem. And when I went there, people were attacking each other, cutting, you know, they attacked the, the, the settlements in the night, cut off people's mouths and so on, and it was disaster. And when I went to the Ministry for uh, Regional Cooperation and I mentioned it, I was almost devoted. I think I shared that story with the ICGLR. said, who told you to go to Rumonge? because government never wanted that story to come out. I'm sharing that to say that if there was a preventive approach, a prevention lens to that humanitarian intervention by the UN, it would have addressed the immediate of resettling, but also go beyond to look at systems and structures that were mediating the interaction and the need, meeting of needs and services between the returnees and the, the locals to make sure that at least 
there are mechanisms put into place to prevent such disputes, or at least to manage them at the local level. We bought a computer and some phones for some people to, to report, and I could not follow them up because I sneaked out of the country. So, reconcept, retooling humanitarian work in such a context would require that, that you expand the, the mandate and the debate and the discussion. You know, otherwise you provide assistance, and I'm, I'm not saying because because my my colleague is on the screen, but I'm just drawing from your example. I'm just going from your example to give you a practical experience in Romongi. You you get it. I totally agree, and I think that like the sector as a whole, uh, you know, it it does provide life life savings uh, assistance, but it it is shifting towards more, um, you know, pushing donors for longer, longer term funding so that it, you know, it provides the, the immediate assistance that's, that's um, needed at the time of, you know, the emergency, but also, um, you know, working with capacity building and, and advocacy with governments and, and armed groups and, and uh, ensuring, you know, that, that, it's not just that first immediate response, but also uh, has some sort of longer lasting impact. And you see with the with the humanitarian nexus with with development work and and you know how they're trying to to merge the two so that there is more meaningful, long lasting support in these kinds of contexts. But unfortunately, you know when an emergency happens, uh, a rapid onset emergency, donors are giving you three, three month funding um, uh, opportunities or six month funding opportunities, which, you know, it is, it is substantial for the, for the life-saving interventions, but not in terms of, of more, more comprehensive, integrated, um, uh, action with with local populations because that you know that's the most important thing is to is to integrate the the expertise and contextual knowledge of of local populations to ensure because you know me coming in here I know nothing about the context except for what I've read right but working with the with local organizations who you know have lived here and 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 know the the dynamics with with cultural dynamics and the structural dynamics i think you know it's invaluable and it needs to be more prioritized and it is slowly starting to to be more prioritized but again it's it's um the donor appetite for for violence and and uh, emergency context it's always you know these very short-term uh funding funding opportunities and while that is valuable in in a way it, it's not working you know and 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 so we we as practitioners need to push more for for the longer term uh where where there is more and more meaningful work i think that's the thing i was going to say that that there's two threads coming out of what you're both saying that i I want to problematize for the sake of conversation, but 
that you know humanitarian assistance has very much linked to development and in the 1990s i think we can see that shift happening um and that kind of leads to the state building that we've seen in a lot of um, the global south uh, spearheaded by you know international bodies like the united nations um and there's a huge uh, challenge there right because you both have emphasized working with contextual actors and local, you know, using that local knowledge, but that's not really how the industries function, right? They use, uh, it's much more of an international interventionist approach um, that's highly um, influenced by a Western framing, particularly international human rights and what that needs to look like. And so, you know, and in, in addition to that, it's timing as well. So with Ashad's example, having people come in with that experience and knowing that they speak a completely different language, language, um, that takes time for us to learn to then strategize how to address the impacts of that violence more effectively and more preventatively as well. And so in my mind, I'm thinking that, that, that time, that amount of time that it takes to do good research about the effects of violence, what, that amount of time that it takes to just assess what you need to be doing to be more preventative and holistic and meaningful, to use Alexandra's word, um, is, is, is going to be, some, I, I think, mitigated or at least reduced if we move away from kind of that broader international intervention to maybe intervention happening at a subnational level, right? Because if we think about civil war, it doesn't encompass the whole country typically. Um, if we think about regional wars, it doesn't typically encompass the whole region, but it'll be specific groups within, right? And so can we ground humanitarian assistance within the same context? And would that help bring more of a local understanding on how to be more meaningful and preventative and more contextual in developing those, those response strategies or preventative methods instead of the, how the industry typically functions now, where you do have um, a lot of international um, practitioners coming in, and if not um, international practitioners, practitioners from other countries within the, similar, uh, within the same region, um, that still might not have that real-time understanding of the effects of the violence. Um, so what do you, I guess, I guess I'll throw it back to you guys. Do you think that um, kind of, moving away from that broader international interventionist approach would be helpful to be more preventative if we were to embed humanitarian assistance and response much more locally and have, for example, in Uganda, when the conflict in the north was unfolding between the Lord's Resistance Army and the, the government of Uganda, the southern part of the country felt quite removed from it. Like when I was interviewing people, especially in the central region, um, they would hear about what was happening and they would kind of receive information about what's happening and people were definitely kind of uh, displaced into the central region as well from the north. But in terms of that kind of direct engagement and um, impact and effect, they were geographically a bit removed. And I, I always wonder, like, what if instead of all these international NGOs and humanitarian NGOs, um, coming in across the north and kind of live, being there for 20 plus years, what if the southern part of the country assisted the northern part of the country? Like, what would that have looked like? And I'm just throwing again, just like, I, I want to kind of get out of the, you know, get out of the box a little bit uh, and brainstorm. So I throw it maybe to um, 
Alexandra this time first because I, I, I keep going back to a shot. Maybe I'll throw it to Alexandra first. What do you think of that? Is that out of, out of, out of the question? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I may be out of a job, but I'm a hundred percent. No, we need you in Canada. Are you kidding me? There's so many things going on here. We need you here. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, but that's the thing is, is um, that contextual knowledge and and um, expertise is is so invaluable and so important for even response that that. I find that it would be more um, effective for a preventative um, way of working, and and and. Um, but again, I think that there's also internal and and inter inter uh, tribal or intercultural um, complexities that that you know we may not understand that that may prevent um, that kind of uh, modality of response, right? Because, because again, like countries in, in uh, the global South have been arbitrarily drawn by, by um, in the colonial history, right? And so, so it's not, I, I don't think it's as simple as that. And, and um, while I think that, that, uh, it would be more effective. There are a lot of considerations as well. Yeah, there's definitely cons, isn't there? Because it opens up a whole nother can of worms and dynamics you gotta navigate. Um, Ashad, what about you? Sarah, you may have heard of the experience where the United States went to Hellman, spent a lot of money to bring water to a village because found women, women walking five kilometers to collect water. It was a big function, then they turned on the tap, the governor was there, and the next day the women walked five kilometers to collect water. <laughs> like thanks, but no thanks, right? The whole thing is about localization. It's not eliminating it's not eliminating or, 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 or de-emphasizing the role of the experts or the donors or, 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 or the, the global north. No, it's about create, building that three-legged stool where the locals affected by the conflict, the international donors or communities or whatever, and the local leaders get into a conversation, okay, to set an agenda for intervention. That is what may provide better approach to localizing humanitarian work or development work. I have gone to embassies, to organizations where they say, we really have resources, but we don't fund that, we don't, we fund this. And then you ask them, okay, um, what we are funding is feeding into the other one. And I say, yeah, but, but we know, we, we think there are mechanisms to deal with that. You, you get what I mean? The SAFE program in Uganda at some point, uh, funded by USID, 
was looking at land conflicts somewhere in northern Uganda. You know? And then I was asking them, but how do you deal with issues of land without in, in, in northern Uganda? And then you're focusing on land without really dealing with the historical problems at a political level, with economic issues that surround actually, that actually make that land more useful if anybody owns it. Why issue of access to then so, so when somebody gets land, then what? He's a returnee from Sudan or wherever he came back from a refugee camp, now has access to land. Then you walk away. You know, <laughs> that they have land. So 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 this is the question is you need to have that localization approach. And I'm using localization based on research conducted by Oli Bridgemont on in you know in dealing with yes on in dealing with this international you know when he talks about hybridity you know you, you build a hybrid approach to peace building or to prevention by bring creating that space where these individuals these three actors have a conversation about the intervention you know um that that is why I, I ended up criticizing you know the, the programs in Guatemala and so on because money was given and then they they shipped in blankets and rice and many other things and then, and then they bought chairs for people to sit in village meetings and, and I said so, so where is the conflict management and it wasn't there so I'm, I'm that is why I'm, I'm I'm talking about this now you know that that, that that we need to retool that thinking and very, very, very fast. Otherwise, it is becoming, um, it is necessary, but it fails because other pieces of the puzzle are not included in the intervention. You're trying to solve a puzzle, but you're moving only one piece, you know, and the others are left where they are and they are creating a problem. Right, right. So you're so you're basically saying you need local knowledge to paint a comprehensive picture of what needs to be addressed and how best to do that. But there is also a role for international actors as well, and all of them help to address different pieces to the same puzzle. And and how, in your view, would this ad- advance preventative methods? Whether it is humanitarian work, advancing a preventive lens is central to all these types of interventions and creating the space for the international, the local and the leadership to have the conversation about the intervention is possible. It's not late. Sarah, you know that we have tried that model in the region. You know that we have moved and advocated for at a very personal level with nothing and, and the work you did here when you were lobbying to have the committee in Uganda, but insisting that we should have the civil society, the politicians, and the academia in the committee, so that any discussion that goes on is informed by research, political interests, but also community-based from the civil society perspective. And at least we set up that model there. Let, let's have it, you know, and do a sample of that and see 
we do an experiment, not as, but maybe an experiment and say, can this work? You know, you know how we have been struggling to get resources for this model to work, but if it had been supported effectively, I think we could have generated very good and useful interventions that can that 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 solve the puzzle at least to a greater extent than actually looking at piecemeal just the pieces of the conflicts and and the violence going on and then you pick one and say for me I'm focusing on elections for me I'm focusing on humanitarian for me I'm focusing on just the human rights part we don't you know for me I'm focusing on the gender dimension. And, and then you go there, everybody goes in their own direction, not knowing that all these are pieces of the same puzzle. All I'm trying to say is one of the ways to make prevention more effective is to think about it in more comprehensive terms so that we provide complex, comprehensive solutions to complex problems and not piecemeal solutions to complex problems. Um, that is that is one of the ways I'm trying to think about that, and that if we are to package it, if we are to package it and promote it, you either take that or you leave it. Better do it, yeah. Better do it right than not or not at all, I guess. Exactly, because because you walk in a place, and then you say we are finding security reform in the DRC, and then you go, you know. There's two threads both of you just touched on. One is that kind of that short-term funding Alexandra mentioned, um, but then the priorities of the donors thematically, right? The gender-based violence, capacity building, um, good governance, um, civic training, human rights sensitization, like these these thematic areas come up and they're very predetermined and um, it's very difficult to graph that onto the complexity that you're talking about, Ashad, and have it fit. Um, it needs to be a little bit more bottom up and we say we're going to be bottom up. So usually what we see now is those industries that rely heavily still on donor funding. Um, you'll see like at the local level, and I've, I've been a part of many of these conversations, you'll generate an idea in response to an actual empirical reality, like a real issue in, in your environment. But then by the time you translate it into donor language and kind of make it acceptable under those thematic areas, you've lost the, the nuance, you've lost the nature of that issue. And so many of um, the threads that you're saying, like it starts to become siloed because you have to fit under these thematic areas. So you can't um, address it comprehensively unless, and this is an area that I think we still have major issues, unless civil society really does collaborate with each other and does, you know, say divide and conquer, but we're all contributing to this kind of overall uh, agenda. Um, and so, because, but, but on the other side of it, and I'd love to hear from you guys about this, in addition to kind of these abstract thematic areas or priorities that maybe don't graph onto real life um, dynamics, there's also the issue of the competition that it generates between civil society organizations to get access to that funding, right? Because you want to be the specialist on gender-based violence. You want to be the specialist on atrocities prevention so that your organization gets that funding. So 
how in that environment that encourages competitions to get donor resources, do you mobilize civil society to then divide and conquer and develop these more comprehensive approaches? It's, it's like kind of the chicken and egg, who changes first? Is it the donors that kind of facilitate more comprehensive um, approaches or does civil society force them into it? Or I guess find their own ways around the existing structure um, by, by collaborating in a completely different way and allowing space for uh, your colleagues and other organizations to be the so-called experts or have uh, or own a certain area of work and, and be okay with that in such a donor competitive uh, industry where organizations are just looking to survive and, and get paid. Um, so I'll um, maybe throw it to uh, Alexandra one more time, then we'll finish with Ashad and I think we'll have to wrap it up after that. Yeah, so I think I think the the competition can be healthy sometimes, but I also think um, I mean even here in Mozambique, um, there are consortiums of organizations that work together and they share um, uh, responses in their areas of expertise. And uh, one organization will take GBV programming, one will take WASH programming, uh, whatever, right? And uh, they'll share the funds and work together. Um, uh, for a holistic response. But I think, um, you know, talking about the localization, um, bigger international NGOs are are looking to work with local partners. They are looking for that, that localization and, and to get that contextual knowledge from, from local NGOs. But unfortunately, a lot of these local NGOs don't have, you know, the the required systems, say, for um, that that donors require for to give funding, right? And and so they they go through international NGOs, and then the international NGOs subcontract the local NGOs, and so there's a lot of money lost in that process as well, right? And and um, the, I think for me, the solution is to have more flexible funding, right? And, and, um, and to build, build the capacity of local organizations and their systems and, and ensuring that they are equipped to be able to, to meet the requirements of these big donors. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not something that's going to happen overnight and, and um, there has been a shift towards it. But um, for me, like the, the collaboration with the local partners is the most important and, and uh, you know, being able to bring technical expertise of, of the bigger INGOs to support the, the um, contextual expertise of, of the local par uh, partners, right? And, and having that kind of... Um, uh, collaborative um, response because because otherwise you know it's just a band-aid solution <laughs> absolutely and for non-specialists INGOs is international non-government organizations and NGOs is non-government organizations I uh, just wanted to no it's fine this is that's part of what I'm supposed to be doing so don't worry <laughs> um, and and Ashad any last reflections on on that uh, donor issue, like, well, how can how can they be more, um, I guess, responsive to reality? 
um, two things. One is, uh, um, you know about my work with the NGO world um, and the, the, the research I did, and I discovered that NGOs are fund-driven. Um, they can register to be focused on the environment. If it's time for elections and there's a lot of money coming in, they all begin to start civic education, you know, <laughs> and and begin accessing resources and, and, and so on. Um, and I think that is that is a problem. But uh, what what does that then mean for, for the donor? I like the idea of uh, flexible funding, but flexibility should not be at the expense of prevention. I still insist on thinking, rethinking prevention and applying that lens to whatever flexibility you are employing within the funding that you provide. Making sure that you attach that lens to, 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 to whatever, whatever packages and whatever priorities you have driven. It is very important. It is, it also, it is, it, I've, I've, I've explained, I've spoken to some economists here and asking them how prevention sensitive is our, our, our national budget. We know our history of resource disparities. We know the challenges we have. How does the the process of developing a national budget feed into addressing historical grievances that tend to, to inform, you know? Do we, do we ever sit and then we say, if this region or if this area has caused much conflict in the past, do we allocate resources that support a redress? how conflict-sensitive our national budgets are. The same question can be applied to the donor funds to say, okay, you have priorities in environment and water, but where does this element feature into the terms and the issues you are supporting? This is the type of thinking I would like us to, to carry. If we are, because we have done a lot at the local level, you know, to think through and research and so on, but given the type, the type, the title and, and, and the topic that we are addressing, I'm trying to think of ways to mainstream it, to condition it, to 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 to, to, to emphasize it at every level, so that whether civil societies are accessing resources, they know some of the minimum conditions. Just like you look for accounting packages. You look for monitoring and evaluation. Are there conditions, mechanisms put into place to make sure that prevention occurs? That these resources that you are applying to build our halls, you know, the money that was given in Helmand to put the water there, it lacked the lens to understand the traditional practices within there because it was discovered later that because of Sharia, women are kept indoors. Going to collect water was the only time they had to talk about their own issues. Then you come and bring water close, you are terminating that, you, you are destroying that time where the women as women speak 
And then the women started telling them the water was uh, has chemicals. You men are going to become important. We are not giving you that water for coffee. We are going to collect it. That's what they say, <laughs> you know. And, and it happened in so many areas. So I'm trying to suggest, okay, that yes, it is a long shot. It is a lot of work. But let us keep put the idea on the table that this type of lens must be applied to all these packages and the donors need to know. Let them ignore it at their own expense and we'll get back to them and tell them, you know what? The houses you built in Romonge, the money was not enough to address this other, this other problem. This other part of the problem and now they are becoming, you know, <laughs> a problem. So, so the water you have built in Helmand, it is good, but it's, you, the comp, this component was missing in that programming, and you need to integrate it next time. Let us put that discussion on the table. And I like the, the initiate, this initiative, Sarah, that you are saying, what is it that is missing for prevention to become actually prevention? You know, and, and how do you translate it? We have dwelt a lot on humanitarian aid. This is one of the areas to help us advance this conversation. But I think if, even in other directions, we can channel that so that we can capture the whole complexity of the challenges we are experiencing for becoming less effective. But, but I like the, the, the recommendation of flexibility, but not at the expense of prevention. I like that. That's two wonderful approaches. I think just that flexibility in terms of how donors actually provide support. So maybe having more unsolicited proposal space where you can just, you know, make a proposal and describe, you know, what it is that uh, you want to be doing and why and, and actually have donors have way more funding allocated to that kind of a package. Um, but then also on the other side of it, if we want to be more preventative, they have so many requirements, right? They have so many monitoring evaluation, you have to report, you have to have certain kinds of, um, um, you know, uh, outputs at the end of your, your programming. So why not take a Sean's approach and actually incorporate, incorporate um, a requirement to have a preventative lens? So through your program, how are you going to be preventative, explaining that and incorporating it into your, your programming? I love that, um, and I'm, I think we'll have to stop there, unfortunately. I'm gonna pick up on this um, in our last episode where we bring everybody together. We're gonna draw out some of the major themes that you and I and Alexandra, um, uh, Ashad, you and I and Alexandra touched on. Um, and then I think we'll, um, you know, just maybe unpack those themes a little bit more from the actual conversations and, and make sure that, you know, those issues that are cutting across all of these different um, areas of work and sectors and contexts, um, that we have some time to unpack those a little bit as well. So overall, just thank you for the, joining me. I'm so happy that uh, I had the chance to introduce you all to each other, but also to, to have this discussion that's very important. Um, and I'm sure we'll have more in the future. So for now, just thank you so much and, and we'll hopefully see you next week for our, for our final episode.